USAU. Good morning. Thanks for joining me on the Meg Ellison Show. I sincerely appreciate appreciate it as always. My guest this morning, Mark Mix, is the president of the National Right to Work Foundation, an organization that provides free legal aid to working men and women who seek to defend their rights against the abuses of forced unionism. According to data from the National Labor Relations Board, workers have been filing to decertify or remove unions in their workplaces up 40% from 2020, and that foundation staff attorneys have played a large role. This is the National Right to Work Foundation attorneys have played a large role in helping workers exercise their rights in that regard. That includes here in Wisconsin, Oshkosh, Toma, Eau Claire, uh, specifically where Wisconsin-based Kerrig Dr. Pepper employees were able to remove an unwanted Teamsters union. Oh, my gosh. You had me at Dr. Pepper. Good morning, Mark Mix. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine, Meg. We still don't know what the what the mystery ingredients of Dr. Pepper are in those 20, I guess, 26 taste buds or whatever that, that trigger that. But we do know this. We're glad to help individual workers across the country, and specifically in this case, in Wisconsin, exercise their rights under the labor law, which is really not easy to do, unfortunately. But uh, we're here to help, and, and this story includes about 70, 71 employees that work for Dr. Pepper Keurig and, and their ability to try to make sure that uh, their voices were heard in a different way outside of the Teamsters Union. So how did this all come about, and what was the, the process for these workers that didn't want to be forced to join a union? Yeah, it's unfortunately, it's a very difficult process because... Uh, by law, the employer can't be involved in any of this. I mean, the employer can be involved in the certification process getting the union in, but when workers want to try to exercise their rights under federal law to remove a union from their workplace, it's a very complicated process. And frankly, the first, it starts out with this kind of timing question. You have to thread the needle during this small window of time uh, when there's when a contract is set to expire. So from 90 days to 60 days prior to the expiration of a contract. It can last three, three, three years, up to three years, maybe even more. Um, the workers have to get a petition signed by a certain number of employees in the workplace to basically trigger this process of having an election. And so the law requires that you have 30% of the units sign this petition. In this case, a majority of the workers signed a petition uh, to basically say, we would like to have a vote. That's what they're requesting is a vote by the employees to decide whether or not the union will continue representation in that workplace. So they got the petition signed, and the result was, I think there was a, some issues about pay raises and things that the Teamsters weren't being responsive to by these workers, and, and there were other issues that were involved. And certainly, you know, most people, it's not unanimous across the board of why people vote or why they, people support or don't support a union in a workplace. But I think it had to do with some of the other issues related to other workers working for Dr. Pepper Keurig in the state. And so they got the 30% signatures, they got more than that, and they sent that petition to the National Labor Relations Board Regional Office in Wisconsin. And the NLRB's role is to look at that and say, okay, we think these signatures are okay, there are people that work there. And then it's respon the responsibility for the National Labor Relations Board to schedule an election. And generally, Meg, those need to be secret ballot elections, where a worker can have their voice or their view, uh, you know, uh, counted, but not be exposed publicly about where they are in supporting a labor union or not supporting a labor union. But that didn't happen here. It was a mail ballot election because, as you mentioned, there were three units across the state that were voting. 
And so ballots went out back in December of last year, and then the workers have to return the ballots by a certain time frame, and then those ballots are counted. In this case, about 60% of the workers voted to say, you know what, we don't want the Teamsters share anymore. So the Teamsters had to walk away from this particular uh, these these three facilities in Wisconsin, and those workers were able to exercise their rights under the law, and we were able to, to help them navigate that process. So I haven't had much interaction with unions other than I go back to the Tea Parties of 2010 and 2009-2010 during the Act 10 discussion Mm -hmm. in uh, Wisconsin here. And, well, I'll just put it this way. My interactions with, and I'm not saying union members per se, but maybe the union bosses wasn't mm-hmm. pleasant <laughs> and 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 frankly even just observing some of those that you know because i was involved in planning tea party events not only here in our community in in central wisconsin but then also uh, down in madison on the steps of the capitol and some of those uh, you know i guess there's no other way to describe it other than to to characterize it as some of those union affiliated people were thugs. I mean, that's that was the, the behavior. And it was kind of intimidating. And, um, you know, and I can imagine that, well, and I guess I won't, I won't speak for this situation, but the employee that initially stood out, stood up and spoke out about this or organized this effort, uh, did he or she meet any opposition from the Teamsters union bosses? I suspect he did. We don't have any anecdotal information to that point, but I'm sure he did. And, and Meg, to your point, it takes a tremendous amount of courage for a worker to stand up and say, hey, we need to think about this again, or we need to make a change or whatever. You know, one of the things we do here at the foundation is represent employees, as you mentioned, and we've been doing that since 1968. Um, We've represented literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees in lawsuits across the country. You know, right now we probably have 220 active cases pending on behalf of employees in their exercise of their rights under federal law when it comes to labor policy. And and every time we get a chance to do this, I'm struck by it. Um, I, I was testifying uh, in the House of Representatives back on November 30th um, on our National Right to Work Act, and two of our of our clients came and testified. And and Meg, their stories are just unbelievable. The intimidation and the threats and, you know, their cars being keyed and, and this type of thuggery that is the last vestige of a scoundrel. Because when you can't make a case, when, you know, the argument is, hey, yeah, we want to force you to pay dues to a private organization that supports candidates, causes, ideas that you don't believe in, and you have to do that, otherwise you lose your job. I mean, that's not a very compelling argument. But the compelling argument is, look, if you don't do what we say, there's going to be trouble. And unfortunately, that manifests itself way too often in situations like this. And and further to your point, Meg, and this is really important because you framed it properly. I mean, the rank and file workers and the, the views of rank and file workers and the views of union officials, union bosses, union thugs, is growing wider and wider all the time. In fact, we just had a really classic example of that with the United Auto Workers endorsement of President Biden two weeks ago. I mean, Sean Fain, the president of this 380,000-member union stood up on a TV show on Fox News and said, he said, let, after making the endorsement of the president, President Biden, he said this, let me be clear, a great majority of our members will not vote for President Biden. They'll vote their paychecks. Now, how can a union official who just endorses Biden for re-election 
end up saying that, that a great majority of his members aren't going to vote for Biden. Well, he can do that because 14 members of the executive committee made the decision to endorse Biden, even though the rank and file workers probably have a different view, according to the president of the very union that they're members of. So that separation is really relevant and it matters. And again, unfortunately, uh, sometimes it, it, it manifests itself in intimidation and coercion and violence, and that's unfortunate. But we're here to help workers in that if we can. Man, I just was thinking, I wonder if they broke his legs after he got off the air. But I'm being somewhat facetious. But, yeah, I mean, my personal experience is that my children were threatened when I was involved mm-hmm. in supporting Act 10. And I, and I don't want to say they themselves were approached, but... I was warned that I needed to uh, be very um, aware of, of my, my children's, uh, where they were going and when they were at school and when they were taking the bus. And I mean, it, it, and maybe part of it was just a scare tactic, but, you know, I didn't want to take any chances. But so, I mean, I experienced it firsthand. And I, and I think about even just uh, this particular individual his willingness to stand up and and really push back against uh, you know I always think of the teamsters as one of the kind of the, one of the tougher ones that you don't want to go against uh, the union bosses in this case because there will be consequences and as you've described it, w- was there anything um, was there anything like that here locally was, was there any pressure uh, uh, leveled against any of these? union members that that uh, I guess maybe caused them to consider reconsider their actions? I, I'm not sure, Meg. And, and obviously we try to protect, you know, the, the, the these folks from any more public exposure. Uh, the, the person that kind of fomented this, Ray Koch, is, was out front about it and and just made the case to to his, you know, his uh, members and and those that worked with him. Um, I'm not aware of anything that happened there, but but truth be told, when you look at the unions and, and their use of this type of coercion and violence over the years, the Teamsters are one of those quote-unquote special unions that, that relies on this more. In fact, I think it, was, uh, it wasn't too long ago that the Teamster president, Sean O'Brien, and a senator from Oklahoma almost got in a fight in a committee hearing in the United yeah. States Senate. It's, it was this threat from O'Brien uh, putting out tweets about this senator from Oklahoma that said, you know, the guy's a phony and he's a coward and he's this and that. And and uh, the senator addressed it directly when, when O'Brien came back to his committee again. And it, it didn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't end up in any kind of fisticuffs or, or Donnie Brooks, but it was uh, the verbal, the verbal exchange was pretty significant. And Bernie Sanders, who was the chairman of the committee, almost broke his gavel trying to, to uh, regain order in the committee. Just say that. Well, yeah. that's, that sounds a little bit too violent for Bernie Sanders. Ha ha. Well, so let's talk about, I mean, you know, if you were to provide some free advice to someone who would like to, I guess, for lack of a better description, escape from the unions and what, what indeed, you know, what the process is for, for doing so. I mean, obviously making, making a connection with your organization and the National Right to Work Foundation would probably be a good start. Yeah, Meg. And again, it's a it's a very difficult process to decertify because the employee has to navigate their way. And so basically they can we have 20 staff attorneys that do nothing but represent employees in situations like this and obviously other situations as well. And 
they can look at our website, nrtw.org, nrtw.org, and they can go there. There's a, a video about decertification. There's frequently asked questions about decertification. And then, of course, they can call us at 1-800-336-3600, and they can talk to an attorney about how this process works and how we can help them walk, you know, navigate through the process. And we do all that. We provide legal services to workers for free. Um, we're able to do that because we have supporters that supply resources to us that allow us to do that. Again, we've, as I mentioned, we've been doing it since 1968. We've argued 18 cases at the United States Supreme Court on behalf of workers. And the one thing that we'll do is stand up and we'll give them, you know, the straight about how this all works and what the issues may be and what the consequences may be. But we will be there to help them through this litigation process and and provide that support that uh, that oftentimes these workers need because. Like I said, the process is not easy. It's a, kind of a maze, if you will. And if one thing happens that's not quite right in, in code, then the election will probably be blocked. And usually that happens, unfortunately, with this National Labor Relations Board that's in power right now under the Biden administration. They're not interested in employee rights. They're interested in union power. And, you know, the labor policy that goes back to the 1930s was written allegedly with the employee in mind, protecting the rights of employees. But what, what's end up happening, Meg, it's really a contest between big business and big labor. And the people that are left on the outside are the individual employees like these at Dr. Pepper Keurig who, Keurig who want to exercise their rights but find it very difficult to do so. And that's why we're here to help. All right. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Speaking of help, <laughs> um, you know, I know it's a, a, a little bit different situation, but here in Wisconsin we are facing a uh, liberal majority uh, state Supreme Court, and they have already, those on the left have already signaled that they are going to come after the historic legislation passed by uh, Governor, former Governor Scott Walker and the Republican legislature back in the day, and uh, it, titled Act 10. We do anticipate at some point that the state Supreme Court is going to take, I mean, it's it's already, it's it's coming and that they're going yep. to take this up and challenge the Act 10 legislation. Any advice that you can offer to help prepare us for what we are facing soon? Yeah, yeah, Meg. You know, it's interesting. Back back in when, in Act 10 in 2012-2013, when the litigation was ongoing, I think there were, what, four or five lawsuits against Act 10 back then. We actually got intervener status on behalf of three employees, state employees in, in Wisconsin, a couple of teachers and another worker. And we were actually able to argue at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals about defending Act 10. And so our lawyers did argue. Uh, we, we, were inter we got intervention on, a, on an issue that was kind of unrelated, but we ended up arguing the case. Our time that we argued in front of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals was specifically on the importance of Act 10 and the legality of Act 10. You know, Act 10 survived several legal challenges back then. But you're right, the new Supreme Court and the union, they've already filed lawsuits against it. I think the SEIU, AFSCME, um, two other unions have filed lawsuits uh, against Act 10, and it will end up in the court. They're going to Dane County again, where they went originally to try to strike down Act 10. We actually, I think, if, if everything has gone well, last week I know that we were getting retainers from, again, another group of employees in Wisconsin so that we can enter the lawsuit on behalf of those employees and filing briefs about why Act 10 should be upheld again even though it's been upheld by this, you know, by the federal court and by the state court back then, um, this is obviously a political attack. And your your new justice, 
uh, actively campaigned on this. I mean, it's really unique when the when it, someone who's running for a judgeship says, "Look, if I'm elected, I'm going to do this to the Act 10. I'm going to try to repeal the right to work law. I'm going to try to do all these things." that uh, are part and parcel of the landscape of Wisconsin today. And, you know, Meg, the one thing about Act 10 that's really fascinating, and I think the Executive Council of Milwaukee is kind of the best case study. You know, they were all opposed to Act 10, but once it passed and once the the folks in Wisconsin and particularly Milwaukee saw that they had new operating room to run the city and saving them literally billions of dollars, and that's not an overstatement. I mean, the state saved literally billions of dollars, and they're still bargaining in the state. They're just bargaining over wages. That's it. They can't control every aspect of government, but this is politics, and it's about power, and unfortunately, hopefully, we'll be involved, and I know uh, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty will be involved, and others will be involved, but it's going to be a big fight, and I think the most important thing we can do is make sure Wisconsinites raise their voices and be heard on this. We'll do some litigation, but obviously, public policy or public pressure is one of the most important parts of it, for sure. Yeah, you know, it always struck me, and and I mean, I was just new to Wisconsin by a few years when, you know, all of this Act 10 legislation went down. And I just thought to myself, why why is it asking too much to uh, expect that someone who has benefits that are, are taxpayer funded, that they, that which, you know, the word benefit itself describes what it is. It benefits the recipient. Why wouldn't they be required to or be asked to contribute in some way. And prior to that, I mean, these these uh, Cadillac plans, I guess I'll call them, uh, health coverage as well as retirement plans, were unsustainable. And, that I mean, the taxpayers were on the hook for uh, these uh, premiums for, uh, for health insurance, as an example, for those that weren't making any contribution themselves. And it just, it really... It, it struck me that we were we were just sort of leveling the playing field, and that's all we were asking for is that, that uh, those that were receiving the benefits make some sort of, you know, have a little vested interest in it and make some sort of contribution themselves. Uh, and that dichotomy has gotten even worse over the years when you look at the government sector and unionization as a whole. I mean, the idea that, you know, it used to be that you work for the public sector because you know, you expect a little bit less pay, but you'd have job security and you'd have a benefit plan that was, you know, probably as good um, or at least as good as, as the private sector. Now, that dichotomy is even worse. I mean, the private, se- the private sector is supporting a, a public sector that's actually costing more and, and those positions, comparable positions, are being paid more by government. And that's taxpayer funded, Megan. You make that great point. I mean, there's a case to be made that, look, we, won't, we don't want to stop anyone from unionizing, whether they're a private sector worker or a public sector worker. But in government, it's an entirely different uh, dynamic because it's, it's, it's a private organization getting in between taxpayers and elected officials. And, and that's just wrong. And Franklin Roosevelt was on our side on that. He said, you know, you just can't unionize the government because it's not the same as the private sector. And I think Act 10, I mean, remember, Wisconsin was the first state to have bargaining for public sector employees back in the late 1950s. And that experiment ended up with huge financial complications that actually led to the passage of Act 10. And basically, Scott Walker had really no choice um, than to limit the power of unions when it came to negotiating these, these extravagant packages that were part and parcel of the Wisconsin landscape. And, you know, I think they're still, those public employees are still doing well, but the union has lost power. 
not the public employees themselves, but the union has lost power. And that's what this fight will be about as the Supreme Court expedites this case through Dane County up through. They'll probably grab it right after Dane County rules and it won't even let it go to the appeals court if I if I cannot kind of read the tea leaves on this. And they'll try to get it as fast as they can to restore that unique power that union officials have over taxpayers and workers in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah. And let's let's um, not fool ourselves into uh, being uh, in, into realizing who, indeed, which political party is in support of the uni- uni- unionization of employees uh, throughout the country. Well, I am very grateful for your organization, Mark Mix. Oh my gosh, I'm and in especially in light of what we are facing here in Wisconsin, it's good to know we've got uh, the National Right to Work Foundation. Uh, that is on our side. We need the good guys on our team to uh, help defend us and and uh, look forward to a continued conversation with you because obviously we're anticipating that Act 10 is going to come before the Wisconsin Supreme Court sooner than later. Indeed, Megan. And if I can wish one thing for you, I'll wish for uh, 12 inches of snow and sub-zero <laughs> temperatures for at least a month. How about that? I don't like the sub-zero temperatures. You can keep, you can keep those, but I'll take the snow. <laughs> but I think the ice fish, the ice fishermen want sub-zero temperatures sure. for a while. I just, well, yeah. you know, maybe a little bit. We're, I'm okay with a little bit colder, but not for you know, not for an extended period of time. But yes, right. we do, we right. do need yes. Well, uh, I appreciate your time this morning, Mark. I. Uh, am again very grateful for the work that your organization does, and I believe you said the website is nrtw.org for more information. Correct. Okay. Yep. Well, Correct. thanks, Mark. You're welcome back anytime. Look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Meg. Have a great day. Going to the 9:30 news, followed by your calls on the other side. You have a comment with regard to the last couple of guests this morning or is there something in the news that you'd like to uh, discuss 715-845-2155 on the meg ellison show on wsau